Whether you like history or not, if you care about bravery, wisdom, passion, larger-than-life characters, and some of the most emotionally intense moments in human experience, you've come to the right place. Daniele Bellelli is a university history professor, a writer, and a martial artist, and he shall be your guide in a journey to the place where history and epic collide. Welcome to episode 41 of History on Fire. Big thank you to Susan Moss O'Donnell and Mauro Gatti for sponsoring the show on Patreon at the $100 level. This episode of History on Fire is also brought to you by 4 a one-stop shop for hair loss, skin care, sexual wellness for men. Some crazy statistics I was reading. Some 66% of guys experience hair loss by the age of 35. 40% of men by age 40 struggle with ED. These guys at 4hims.com try to solve those problems in the easiest possible way. You don't need an in-person doctor visit for a prescription. Everything can be done online. They basically sell you the generic version, which is considerably cheaper but works the same than some of the name brand for the top hair loss and ED products. You can try their products for a month, starting today for just $5. So, while supplies last, only $5 for History on Fire listeners. This would cost, needless to say, would cost a whole lot more if you were to go any other route. So go to 4 forward slash history and the number 5. Again, that's F-O-R-H-I-M-S dot com forward slash history and the number 5. Can't beat this deal, so check them out. This episode is sponsored by Action Heat. Action Heat makes the world's best heated clothing. In case you are wondering what exactly are heated clothes, That would be clothes powered by rechargeable batteries to keep you warm even in the most brutally cold winter. Think of a heated car seat and imagine applying the same technology to clothes. They have heated jackets, socks, gloves, hats, even long johns. Now, I live in sunny California, so what do I know about having to deal with sub-zero winter temperatures? Well, one of my favorite places is Big Bears, which is only two hours from my house, but it's 7,000 feet up a mountain and it gets plenty cold out there. So I'm heading out over Christmas to spend a few weeks there, and I look forward to trying Action Heat and test it under duress. Well, this is speaking of Christmas, Action Heat will make great Christmas gifts, so we got a special deal for our listeners to save 15% off your entire order. Just go to actionheat.com forward slash history to check out everything they have to offer. Again, that's actionheat.com forward slash history 
or use the coupon code HISTORY at checkout to save 15%. You guys by now know who else we are sponsored by, since they have been sponsoring us all year long. You have heard it before, History on Fire is sponsored by BlueApron.com. And you've heard it before, not just because of repetition, but because of the insane level level of enthusiasm that I've been displaying when I talk about them. Because we eat that three times a week, three days a week. We got our, you know, we got the delivery once a week, and then we have food lasting for three awesome meals of the week. My only regret is that I don't have more. Maybe I should up my plan and start getting more stuff. In any case. They offer amazing recipes. You can pick how many you want each week, whether two, three, or four. High quality ingredients, fairly easy to follow um, directions. Usually you can get an amazing meal prepared for really fast. So what I suggest you do is check out this week's menu and get your first three meals for free at blueapron.com forward slash on fire. Again, that's blueapron.com forward slash on fire to get your first three meals free. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. We're also brought to you by letterjoy.co. So that's not .com, it's .co. Letterjoy mails you or someone you love one curated historic letter every week. Uh, They are mailed on either fine cotton or parchment paper using a real stamp. So that's a interesting way to make sure that some of history's most fascinating figures now become your pen pals. You give or receive weekly historic letters from figures like Thomas Jefferson, Florence Nightingale, George Patton, you name it. These guys pick from the world's best libraries and archives to find great letters to tell every story. Each letter comes with background information to help you contextualize it, and it's a great way to experience history through the words of those who wrote it. Among some of the recent letters, there are some by Sam Houston and Stephen Austin strategizing on how to beat General Santana of Mexico, one by Justice Samuel Chase trying to plead his innocence during an impeachment trial of a Supreme Court justice, which is a big first in history. There is a listener exclusive for our guys. If you use the code ONFIRE to get a $5 credit toward your first gift or membership. So again, that's the code on fire to get a $5 credit when you visit letterjoy.co. Again, that's letterjoy.co to get started. Big shout out to the nice people at www.travelisbeautiful.com. Uh, as the name implies, this is a travel blog uh, website. They have a section with the travel blog itself, which has the most content on the website. There are articles with usually historical background relevant to the locations they discuss, places that the authors have visited in their journeys, anything from uh, hiking to the bottom of the Grand Canyon, climbing to the top of Angel's Landing, floating some 200 miles of the Colorado River, and many other international destinations. There's also a photo gallery section to the website containing high-quality images of the places they have visited. So if you dig travel and you dig high-quality photography, check out this cool website. 
And if you do find it interesting, just subscribe to get updates for when they publish new content. Again, that's www.travelisbeautiful.com. Please also show some love to our regular sponsors, Datsusara with the greatest hemp gear on the planet. I roll when I train in jiu-jitsu in a Datsusara gi, I go to work carrying Datsusara bags, I wear Datsusara clothing. Finest hemp gear you're going to find in beautiful design. Check them out at dsgear.com. And also a huge thank you to Onnit. Now, Onnit in November, it's a special month because they have their Black Friday sale, which is the stuff of legend, because their products get slashed during this period of time. Starting on Thanksgiving, November 22nd, Onnit's biggest sale of the year will deliver the deepest discounts on all their favorite products. Nothing is off limits. Every single one of them you can get discounts from the nootropic like alpha brains to some of the fitness equipment and just about everything else there is also going to be free shipping this time around with minor exclusions so check them out huge discounts on pretty much everything uh, the way to go is you can go at onnit.com forward slash black dash friday again onnit.com forward slash black dash friday Big shout out to Snow Roast Coffee Roasters out of Colorado. These guys roast exotic single origin coffee and creative blends from around the world. They do it one small batch at a time, over a mile high. Their beans do not sit on the shelf very long. They do not oxidize in a coffee shop plastic storage bin. Their coffee is roasted, cooled, bagged, sealed and sent directly to your door just for you to enjoy. Because they are a small-scale operation, it's very much first-come, first-serve, so you can go to snowroast.com to check out what they have in stock and get it. Buy if they, you know, they let you know immediately, they update the websites constantly to let you know what's in stock, what's available, and what's not. At checkout, you can use the code HOF and the number 18 to get a big discount. Again, that's HOF18. For a discount. Shout out to the folks behind the Brain Food Show. Brain Food Show is a podcast brought to you by the same team behind the wildly popular Today I Found Out YouTube channel. The podcast does deep dives into historical curiosities, everything from how fame enlightenment thinker Voltaire made his fortune by helping to rig the lottery to when Julius Caesar was captured by pirates and all the fun that stemmed from there. Find it on iTunes, just search in Brain Food, all one word, and I hope you guys enjoy it. Also thank you to NeverTapGear.com with the most awesome rush guard ever designed by our Savannah M, giving a homage to the historical figure of the great female samurai Tomoe Godzen nevertapgear.com and also thank you to dynastyforge.com for the amazing swords that they have shared with me over time if you didn't catch any of the above websites the links are in the episode notes at historyonfirepodcast.com but now without further ado let's go to history on fire so here we go we jump into part three of this four-part series on John of Arc. 
You probably want to listen to the other two episodes first, but in case you don't mind jumping into the story halfway through, feel free to jump in here. And if you have already listened, great, let's get going with this. In 1429, within days of the successful lifting of the siege of Orléans, a Venetian merchant named Antonio Morosini wrote the following. This maiden said to Monsieur le Dauphin that he should go to Reims to bind about his head the crown of all France. We know that everything she has said has come to pass, that her words are always confirmed by the event. She has, in truth, come to achieve great things in this world. The maiden Morosini was speaking of was the subject of our podcast series, a 17-year-old who would come to be known to history as John of Arc. Even though her career in the public eye would last barely two years, as unlikely as it may sound, it was her presence that turned the tide of the Hundred Years' War. And what Morosini describes in his passage is precisely what made people take notice. As Morosini put it again to repeat that, we know that everything she has said has come to pass, that her words are always confirmed by the event, she has in truth come to achieve great things in this world. As an illiterate peasant, John had knocked on the doors of French nobility, saying that she was sent by God to protect the city of Orleans and free it from its siege. The French army had experienced nothing but defeat as of late, and the English and Burgundian forces had been on a roll. No one held much hope that Orleans could be saved. It was a full serrand with hardly a chance of success. And yet, within four days of her riding onto the battlefields, the English army was badly beaten, the siege was over, and the city was saved. John had promised the impossible, and the impossible had happened. So this is what had propelled John from being considered as an eccentric curiosity in the best case, and just playing crazy in the wars, into a straight-up legend. Almost immediately, reports started spreading around Europe, describing John as some kind of saint. Not so much among the English, who refer to her as a witch, because as you may imagine, being beaten by this lady did not make them think of her in particularly fond terms. Rather than sitting back and enjoying her unlikely triumph, within days from chasing the English from Orleans, John was now ready to move to phase two of her mission, to clear the way to the town of Rennes for the coronation. In order for this to make any sense, let me remind you of something that I mentioned in part one of this series. The city of Rennes was a place where traditionally French kings were crowned and where they assumed the title of king. You couldn't have the ceremony just anywhere. It was important for a claimant to the throne, wanting to be taken seriously, to follow protocol. And the way protocol went was that the legend had it that God had sent a holy ampolla full of sacred oil to Clovis, the first Christian king of the French. Clovis, by the way, was an interesting character, to put it mildly. 
If you've never done so, there's an episode in Dan Carlin's Hardcore History called uh, Angels of Thor, or Thor's Angels, something like that, that in which Dan waxes poetically about the career of Clovis. It's pretty funny. And Clovis emerges essentially as a, a thug with an axe. So don't picture a pious Christian monarch, but somebody who probably adopted Christianity for convenience more than because he saw the light and suddenly he was all about peace and love. But in any case, point being, the French people believed that the very same batch of oil that had been used to anoint all French kings from Clovis forward was still the one to be used for anyone coming up to the throne in the 1400s. And the only oil of Clovis was kept Rennes. So, what was the problem with that? Why not go to Rennes, get anointed and claim the throne? Well, the problem rested on the fact that the English held the city of Rennes. So for the ceremony to take place, John and the defense army would have to wrestle away several towns from the English before conquering Rennes itself. So, if... If you think that lifting the siege had been already a crazy endeavor and, you know, it was this one in a hundred kind of chances and somehow miraculously worked out, now John is doubling down. He's, she's trying again her luck. So in preparation for another campaign that had insanely risky written all over it, John went to meet with the Dauphin and asked for more men and supply so that she could clear a path to Rennes. Charles agreed because being crowned would help him a whole lot, and plenty of people now believe that John was a saint sent by God, so lots of volunteers started pouring in wanting to follow her in any campaign that she would lead. So just about a month after the end of the siege, John was ready to ride with the army once again, to go on a campaign fighting at every step until they would conquer Rennes itself. The first destination was the town of Largo, only a few miles from Orleans. Aware of the movements of the French army, Sir John Fastolf left Paris with thousands of troops to support the English garrisons targeted by John and their comrades. At Largo, the Earl of Suffolk and 700 English soldiers were in charge of defending the heavily fortified town. Some of the French leaders weren't so sure that an attack on the city could be successful. Now, take a wild guess. How do you think John responded to this? If you guess, she would say, oh, geez, you may be correct, we shouldn't take unnecessary risks. You guess wrong. John, as usual, proceeded to sting them in their pride. She said that if she weren't sure that God would help them, she would have stayed home. She was 100% confident of victory. To those who counseled her to slow down and follow a more measured approach, she replied, act, and God will act. After the success at Orleans, with more and more soldiers deferring to her decisions, it was getting much harder for captains to ignore her choices. Case in point, one French captain had agreed to avoid attacking the town if the English promised they would leave within 15 days. 
Basically, they would wait to see if a fast elf army could arrive in time to rescue them, and if not, they would agree to surrender if he didn't. Jean disagreed. She convinced everyone else to overrule this captain, and attack the town instead. She gave the English garrison in town a single chance. She sent the usual kind of letter to the English, which basically read, Obey God and surrender, or be massacred. The English ignored their threats, and so a battle that was to last two days was officially on. During the initial phases of the battle, the French army attacked the suburbs that were outside the city walls. The English soldiers left the walls and went to fight the French for every inch in every street. The English resistance was fiercer than the French army was comfortable with, so many French soldiers began retreating seemingly ready to give up the fight. This is precisely the kind of moment Taylor made for John to shine, and shine she did. She raised their standard, and with her voice booming over the chaos of battle, she encouraged the soldiers to turn around and fight. Now, anybody can understand that turning around a panic-stricken army on a route is a lot easier said than done. Any commander can scream encouraging the men to brave on and fight, but to get them to actually listen and take action is a whole other business. It takes someone truly special to be able to stop her out with just the sound of his voice, or, in this case, her voice. Further confirmation that John fit the description of someone truly special is the fact that she was able to do just that. As a result, the English retreated behind the walls, and the French camp outside in the suburbs. The English, however, needed more convincing before they would surrender. The English, however, needed more convincing before they would surrender. And John figured that a bombardment was precisely the kind of convincing they needed. During the cannon duel between attackers and defenders, a rather curious episode took place. One of the leading French commander was the Duke de Lanson, who happened to be one of John's most enthusiastic supporters among the nobility. His father had died in battle, and the Duke himself had already spent a few years as a prisoner of war of the English. So the Duke's wife had been extra nervous at the thought of him seeing battle again. In order to reassure her, John had told her, Lady, do not be afraid. I will bring him back safe, as he is, or even in a better state. Now the cannonballs were flying through the air, John noticed that the Duke looked worried, so he comforted him with these words. Noble Duke, are you afraid? Don't you know that I promise your wife to bring you back safe and sound? And while he was at it, she figured that she would add to this pep talk with a little bit of advice. She told him to step away from where he was, or she warned he would be killed, because a cannonball would land right there. The Duke didn't bother asking how she knew this or anything, he just sheepishly obeyed, seemed like a safe bet. And a few seconds later, the very spot exploded under cannon fire and the man who had unwisely taken up the place vacated by the duke was blown to pieces. 
I can almost picture the departing soul of this knight being less than pleased with John. You tell the duke to move and you save him thanks to your amazing powers, but hey, what about me? Don't you think you could have warned me too? Sorry, man. John had, after all, had not promised your wife to bring you back safe. So that's where he was. In the duke's own ward, this is how he recounted the event. At one point, when I was attempting to hold a certain position, John told me to retire from that place. Because if I did not, that machine, and she showed me a machine that was in the city, by the way, in this quote, machine stands for cannon, if, you, if I did not, that machine will kill you. I withdrew, and a little later, at the very spot from which I had withdrawn, someone named Monsignor de Lude was killed. That struck great fear in me. And after these events, I marveled greatly at anything John said. Yeah, well, hard to disagree with the poor guy. Um, if something like that happened, you would probably be paying extra attention to what she said. As the battle progressed, the French forces decided to storm the town by scaling the walls with ladders. One English soldier proved to be particularly troublesome, as he was quite effective at knocking down the ladders. So, much like what had happened at Orléans, Jean de Ganner, a sharpshooter already mentioned in part two of this series, was called again and just like he had done at Orléans, dispatched a tough enemy with one shot. John herself was in the thick of the action. During the fight, she climbed onto a ladder toward the enemy's wall. A defender did not want to see her up close, so he dropped the rock on her head, knocking her down and cracking her helmet. And the third, John got back up and screamed, Our Lord has condemned the English. At this hour, they are ours. Have courage. Overwhelmed by the French attack, the English garrison had to surrender. And one of Suffolk's brothers had been killed, another one captured, and, you know, the one that was captured actually did a really curious thing. He, as he was being captured, he knighted the commoner who had captured him. You know, basically did this little quick ceremony to bestow on him the right of knighthood and that status. Why did he do that? Well, because it was embarrassing to surrender to a commoner. So if at least it had been a knight who captured him, he would feel a little better about it. Since it wasn't a knight, well, we might as well make him a knight, so I will, my ego will remain intact. Only after that he agreed to surrender. Suffolk himself was captured. Many English were killed, quite a few after they had surrendered. So this was another big victory for the French army since John had joined them. No one to resting on past accomplishment, John pushed on to attack another town just a couple of days later. There, the French army ignored the town and focused all their efforts on taking a key strategic bridge, something they accomplished in just a day of fighting. On the very next day, the French army moved to attack yet another town. After another heavy bombardment with cannons, the Duke de Lanson received news that Sir John Fastolf and his sizable relief force were nearby. He quickly negotiated a surrender of the English garrison in exchange for letting them leave town in peace and unharmed. 
As this was going on, a possible diplomatic crisis was looming in the French army. A thousand fresh French soldiers arrived ready to volunteer under the leadership of a commander named Arthur de Richemont. Richemont had a colorful and complicated history. His widowed mother had married Henry IV, the man who had been King of England prior to his death in 1413. But his best friend was the previous Dauphin, Louis, Charles' brother who had died in 1415. Richemont had fought at the Battle of Agincourt in 1415, and he had been taken prisoner after the battle, been brought to England as a prisoner of war. Now, because he was the son-in-law of the former king, he was treated well and allowed to marry the widow of his best friend, Louis, the daughter of that very John the Fearless of Burgundy, who was a central figure in part one of this series. Very, very weird, I know. He, you know, it seems like Richmond had an almost Forrest Gump ability to be involved in one way or another with every single one of the most important family in France here. You know, he's marrying the daughter of uh, the Duke of Burgundy. He was the son-in-law of the French king. He, the former Dauphin, was his best friend. Uh, he's tied to every one of them, basically. So through marriage and friendship, Richmond had close ties to the Dauphin, the Burgundians, and the English. And as a result, he could have fought for any one of them. But when the Duke of Bedford refused to give in command of an English army, Yolande, the Dauphin's mother-in-law, had convinced him to join the Dauphin. But it would be too easy if we stopped there, right? So it gets more complicated. But one of the Dauphin's advisors, Georges de la Tremoille, he was not a big fan. He wanted careful diplomacy, not warriors. And Richmond was a warrior through and through. So Latremoyle convinced the Dauphin not to allow him to join the French army. So in this game of alliances and breaking of alliances, at the moment when he met Jean, Richmond was in an ambiguous position. Theoretically, he held a high position in the French army, but he was at the moment technically still disgraced in the eyes of the Dauphin, and he was not officially allowed to join the army. So many nobles were actually troubled by his arrival. Jeanne agreed to meet him, and the two of them did some metaphorical mutual sniffing. At least I think and I hope it was metaphorical. I sort of picture them as two dogs sniffing each other, trying to decide whether they will be each other's best friends or whether they should fight to the death. One thing they clearly had in common is that they both resented the slow, cautious approach favored by some among the defense advisors. Richmond, for himself, he was naturally attracted to John's uncompromising desire to attack and attack now. She similarly liked that he was as aggressive and ready to fight as she was. They were kindred spirits who had little patience for diplomacy. So without consulting other commanders who were asking for their permissions, John made Richmond swear an oath to serve the king loyally and then accepted him among them. Now, despite the fact that many people within the French army thought that this was a bit of a bold move, 
and he flew in the face of the defense prohibition against having him join the main body of the French army. No one dare challenge on about this. Which should tell you a lot about her power and status within the French army at this point. I mean, she was flat out disobeying an order from the Dauphin, who's the, who's the man that she's trying to turn into a king, who's currently a prince and wanting to claim kingship, so he's the highest authority, and she's just like, yeah, I'm not going to listen to what he said, I'm going to take this guy in. The fact was that, with a large contingent of enemy soldiers, under Sir John Fastolf arriving and ready for battle, John needed all the friends she could get. Her ability to keep the other lords from quitting in protest while adding Richmond to her army was a great diplomatic move, and it tells you a lot about the respect she commanded. So just as John and the French army, and with now Richmond added to their ranks, just as they were getting ready to move on to the next town, messengers arrived from Fastolf. He had arrived with his own army and he was ready for action. So the two armies stood, facing each other across the field. John sent the messengers back to Fastolf with some words. Go and camp for today, because it is quite late. But tomorrow, at the pleasure of God and Our Lady, we will look more closely at you. <laughs> I really love John's trash-talking abilities. She managed to be both insanely cocky and somewhat restrained at the same time. Tomorrow, we will look more closely at you. That's quite a unique way to tell someone they are about to unleash hell on them. Perhaps unnerved by this, Fastolf decided to split. The town that he had been rushing to rescue had already surrendered to the French. As part of the negotiations, English soldiers in the town were allowed to leave and they joined Fastolf and the other commanders, which included Talbot and Scales. The English army numbered about 5,000 people. But just because Fastolf decided he wasn't so hot for battle doesn't mean that John would be denied. John pushed for battle with Fastolf's retreating army. She encouraged the troops to keep harassing the English and not let them enjoy a mellow retreat. In the War Council, John said, In the name of God, let us go and fight them. If they were hung in the clouds, we would get them, for God sent them to us that we might punish them. And in another sentence that she's quoted as saying during this council, The gentle king shall have the greatest victory today that he has ever had, and my counsel says to me that they are ours. Of course, by my counsel she means the voices that she kept hearing. By now, French military leadership deferred to her. So if John said we fight, then fighting is just what would be on the menu for that day. So off on their horses they went, chasing after the retreating English army. Realizing that they were being pursued, the English decided to prepare an ambush for the French forces. Fastel sent one of his captains with 500 archers to hide by a path where the French would pass. Making things worse for the French, 
their vanguard was far ahead of the rest of the army, so the English would enjoy a numerical superiority in the early part of the fight. But sometimes, sometimes history turns on some highly improbable variables, the proverbial black swans, and a big black swan was about to spoil Fastolf's plans. Actually, at the cost of mixing up my zoological imagery, I should mention that the metaphorical black swan that doomed the English army took the shape of a very real gigantic stag, a red deer that probably weighed around 500 pounds, which, if you go by kilos, we're talking about some 200 plus kilos. For unknown reasons that I'm sure made sense in his dear mind, the stag mentioned above decided to run headlong into the very woods where the formation of English archers were hiding while waiting to ambush the French. No English army that had faced John of Arc had had much luck so far, so the archers were already tense at the prospect of battle with the witch and their minions. That's how she, they saw her. They believed that she was a witch with magical powers. And now, as they spoke in hushed tones and tried their hardest to make no noise, a giant beast stampeded among them. Many of the archers scream while they try to get out of the way. In the process, they inevitably gave away their position to the vanguard of the French army. So the ambush had failed and the failure of this ambush set the tone for the unmitigated disaster that the rest of the battle would be for the English. After the utter destruction of the ambushing archers at the end of the French vanguard, the rest of the English army fled in a panic, with the pursuing French picking them off one by one as they ran. By the time it was all done and over with, the French lost only about a hundred men compared to the more than 2,000 left on the field by the English. And to make things worse, many of the English who were captured included some of the most important captains except for Fastolz himself, Talbot and Scales being two of the most well-known. The loss of these commanders was on top of the earlier losses of the Earl of Suffolk and the Earl of Salisbury. English military leadership in the last few months had suffered a series of tremendous blows, and in just the seven weeks since John had arrived at Orléans, the French army had gone from ready to raise the white flag to winning battle after battle. Now, to be fair, John had actually not participated in this latest battle, since she was not with the vanguard, she had stayed with the main body of the army. And one of the few stories told about her in regard to this battle is that she arrived at the front lines late along with the bulk of the army, when the only surviving English were now prisoners. And at one point she saw a French soldier hit a prisoner of war with the clear intention of dispatching him. John rushed to the dying English soldier, and according to the tale she knelt by him, weeping, while holding his head and asking him to confess his sins, which he did before his last breath. The fact that she would shed tears for a dying enemy 
was yet another thing that made her unlike just about everyone else in the eyes of her own soldiers. In the span of a few weeks, she had risen dramatically in the estimate of those fighting alongside her. Thibaut d'Armagnac, for example, who fought under her, said, In the leading and drawing up of armies and in the conduct of war, in disposing an army for battle and haranguing the soldiers, she behaved like the most experienced captain in all the world, like one with a whole lifetime of experience. Similarly, the Duke de Lanson added, In the conduct of war, she was most skillful, both in carrying a lance herself, in drawing up the army in battle order, and in placing the artillery. So in their view, she wasn't simply one who brought luck, but she actually possessed a special talent for warfare, even though some of her choices could be seen as reckless by more cautious commanders. Other people, however, were understandably less fond of John. Not only the English and the Burgundians, well, that goes without saying, but individuals like Georges de Tremoil, the counselor who had pushed the Dauphin toward diplomacy and caution. He was a mortal enemy of Richmond and did not like John because of her peace with Richmond and their aggressive tactics. As a result of the successes of the French army, several towns began to surrender without putting up a fight. The town of Troato did not get the memo. They refused to surrender. They were still loyal to the English and refused to open their doors to the French army. Among the people in the town was an apocalyptic preacher named Brother Richard. He was very he very much fit the mold of those preachers who would capture public imagination by chastising the perceived sins and excesses of the people and threatening them with hellfire. This tactic of working on people's fears and insecurities often worked very well, and it certainly did in this case. His popularity soared and sermons had convinced people to burn fancy clothing, give up dice, cards, and others, so-called vanities. Since he was the leading preacher in town, the locals gave him the task to communicate with John and report what he saw. Was she indeed a witch in league with the devil? Was she a saint? Was she just crazy? Was she a fraud playing the people in a cynical ploy to gain political support for the Dauphin? It was Friar Richard's job to find out, so he walked out of the town for a diplomatic meeting with John. When he first approached her, he sprinkled her with holy water just to make sure she wasn't a demon, because you can never be too sure. Demonstrating she had a sense of humor, John joked with him and said, Come closer. Promise I will not fly away. After chatting for a while, Brother Richard's initial hostility melted away and he quickly became a big fan of John. Despite this surprising turn, the citizens in town still chose to resist. So it's kind of funny, because they send him out to say, hey, figure out if she's good or not. He comes back, say, yeah, I like her, she's awesome. And they're like, yeah, well, we still don't want to listen, forget it. By now, by the way, the Dauphin himself had joined the army since they were on their way to Reims for the coronation. The Dauphin's council was divided on what to do with this town. 
There was debate on whether to attack it or move on without securing it. So the defense sat down with his war council and with his most important captains. John was actually not invited, and as the debate in the French army was raging whether to move on or fight, and the arguments flew back and forth, the captains disagreed, you know, fighting was difficult because the town was well defended and the army was low on supplies. At one point, one of the captains suggested they should listen to what the maid had to say, that John should be given a chance to speak to the council since they owed all the recent successes to her, which was a big change in just a few weeks when they had seen her at best as a cheerleader. So she was brought into the council. The bastard of Orleans said, as the following quote for what happens, he said, John came and entered the council, saying these or similar words. Noble Dauphin, order your people to come and besiege the town of Troyes, and stay no longer in council. For in the name of God, within three days I will lead you into the city of Troyes by love or strength or courage, and the false Burgundians will be amazed. So the choice before the Dauphin and his men was to either follow John against all reason, or to listen to reason. Problem with this choice is that reason had not brought them any major victories in years. John had. So Charles allowed her to proceed against the city. John began preparations for, for the siege and an attack. Once the attack began, the inhabitants could expect no quarter. Incidentally, no quarter is a great Led Zeppelin song later covered by Tool, but aside for that, moving on. The idea with sieges was, you know, we'll give you a choice to surrender before we start. Once we start, you know, even in ancient times, in ancient Roman times, there was this idea that once the ram touched the wall, the ram being the one thing that you'd use to try to take down the doors of a town, once the siege begin, you know, if you make a sweat in trying to set up the siege, then you have just forfeited all rights to mercy if we conquer you. Um, once we conquer you, we can do whatever we want with you. Maybe we'll be merciful, maybe we won't. So it was always a tense decision when you refused the offer to surrender, because at that point, you better pray that you succeed and keep the siege at bay, because if you are conquered, you are in a world of trouble. So the citizens of the city so were preparing to use tons of wood to fill the moat surrounding the town and walk up the walls, and stacking mountains of gunpowder to blow them up. John's determination scared them, so wisely they decided to give up. And John and the king rode into town side by side, just as she had predicted. Just a few days later, Rennes itself, the destination toward which the French army had been marching, the only place where French kings could be crowned, that city surrendered. And so on July 17th, during a solemn ceremony, the archbishop anointed the Dauphin. Charles was crowned as Charles VII. Just four months earlier, Charles had been planning to give up, abandon France to the English, and escape to Spain or Scotland. 
Now his once miserable army was stringing huge victories one after another, and he was officially crowned in a city held by the English just a few days prior. His luck had definitely turned around. And what had brought this sudden change? The illiterate teenage girl who stood by his side during the coronation. A contemporary writer said God gave John, I quote, a heart greater than any man's. Everything that John had promised had happened. She had promised two seemingly impossible things, the lifting of the siege of Orléans and the crowning of the Dauphin. And now Orléans was free and Charles was wearing a crown. Only one year earlier, a lesser noble was kicking her out of his house, yelling that her father should beat her for wasting his time. Now her name and their deeds were on everyone's lips. As a result of her action, the English would never again have as much as an advantageous position in France during the rest of the Hundred Year War as they had before John changed history. Technically speaking, by now she had accomplished everything she had set her sights on. The voices she heard had given her two tasks, the freeing of Orléans and the crowning of the Dauphin. Check and check on both of them. According to her, her whole mission had been guided by angels sent by God. And now the job was over. So John was in the rare position of someone who accomplished everything she had envisioned by the time she was 17 years old. So now what? What could she do with the rest of her life? After what she experienced in the span of a few months, could she have gone back to being just another nobody in Domremy? She clearly lived for doing epic stuff on behalf of a divine mission entrusted to her by supernatural beings. That's what she believed. So after you become the maid, lead an army to victory multiple times, and you step far outside the ordinary life of a person of your gender, class, and age, then what do you do? She was the one who pulled all the strings to ensure the crowning of the King of France, something which had seemed impossible just weeks before. She had done at record speed everything that the voices had commanded, and she wasn't even 18 years old. So was retiring and leading a normal life even an option at this point? Can you really just change back into your peasant clothes and go back to being an unwed teenager in a small village, watching the sheep and mending clothes? To John, the answer was clear. No way. That was not going to happen. Okay, so far so good, but what was the plan exactly? The voices now were quiet. They had not mapped out any further steps for her. John's idea was to keep leading her army to take Paris. Was it because she was now an adrenaline junkie? Was it because the life of a teenage peasant girl was understandably unappealing to someone who had seen so much in so little time? Obviously we can get inside her head. But what we do know is that John was determined to continue on her path with or without the voices guiding every step of her way. 
She now believed that she should kick the English out of France. So it wasn't enough just to have lifted the siege, it wasn't enough to have gotten the king crowned. Now she wanted to fully win the war. That's what she will, what her next step would be. So by August 15th, John and the French army ran into an English army under Bedford. And what could have been a huge battle turned into mainly a staring contest, since the English refused to engage, and the French remember all too well that attacking the English archers when they were ready for battle wasn't a good idea. So with neither side willing to move first, nothing happened. And a lot more nothing was going to happen if the diplomats close to the king had their way. Following the coronation, they had gained more prominence over the king compared to those who had won the diplomatic capital by fighting in battle. John believed that the way forward was more victories in battle. She supposedly told the king peace was to be found only at the tip of a lance, which clearly shows you where her mind was. The king's advisors believed they should use the victories the ones that they have already obtained, to press for a diplomatic advantage. John didn't take well that the king she had done so much for immediately signed a truce with the Duke of Burgundy, indicating a shift in strategy from military to diplomacy. And to make things worse, as part of this truce, the king would take responsibility and make reparations for the killing of John the Fearless, and he would be delivering back into Burgundian hands some of the very towns the army had just conquered, just in exchange for Burgundian neutrality. John believed peace through diplomacy with the English and the Burgundians was an illusion. She believed the Burgundians would laugh all the way to the bank, taking what was offered while not reciprocating as they had promised. So she was frustrated that the king she had shed blood for would prove so blind as not to see it. The clash with the king was obvious in a letter that John dictated to the people of France. John the Maid, this is the text from the letter, so I'm going to be quoting here, John the Maid sends you our news and praise and request that you do not have doubt about the merit of her cause that she's waging for the blood royal. And I promise and certify that I shall never abandon you so long as I live. And it is true, the king has made truces with the Duke of Burgundy. But, she added, no matter how many truces are made like this, I'm not at all happy, and I do not know if I will keep them. But if I do, it will only be to protect the honor of the king. Wow, think about that for a second. She's openly saying, you know, when she states, I'm not at all happy and I do not know if I will keep them. John is openly saying that she may not honor the treaties signed by the king. That's really wild. I mean, she openly criticized the king she had just crowned. Her defiance was borderline rebellious. Author Mary Gordon writes... Obviously, this would never be a wise move for someone whose position was dependent on the favor of the king. But the wisdom of the world was something that was of no interest to John. 
she seems to have lacked any impulse toward self-protection or calculation of a policy that would safeguard her position. I mean, yeah, it's pretty clear that she just didn't care. She had accomplished something impossible, but she wasn't there calculating every step of the way, figuring out how she could gain advantage and maintain status, or she couldn't care less. She had her vision of how things should be, and when she saw the king not following that vision, she had no qualms letting people know. Which, of course, is not the smartest diplomatic move possible, but that was John. So in light of this shift in strategy by the king, she was turning from a great asset into a liability. Clearly, John's usefulness was at an end. Some knights began debating whether to follow John or not, since they could be exiled for disobeying the king, since her path seemed to be not exactly in line with his. So by this point, she lost half of her army. And after realizing that the Duke of Burgundy, just as John had warned, had no intention to keep the truce, perhaps to patch things up, King Charles gave her a reluctant go-ahead to proceed with the army onto Paris and see if she could take the city from the Anglo-Burgundian alliance. So that's a weird turn of events that happened rather quickly. You know, we saw victory after victory after victory, coronation of Charles, everything is going great. And then the internal politics at court are changing. The strategy shifts toward diplomacy. A truce is signed with the Burgundian in a way where the John sharply criticizes because she sees it as a tactical mistake. And things are... You know, that success is proving hard to hold on to at this point. Now, yes, Charles just gave her the go-ahead to go attack Paris. But, well, we'll see what's going on here. This is where things began to turn ugly for John. On September 8, she was among those leading the attack on the city. Attacking Paris, of course, was a very difficult endeavor due to its massive fortifications and large population. The first day of fighting didn't go well at all for the French army. Cannons did preciously little to Paris walls, and the attempt to scale those very same walls ended with many casualties among the attackers. John herself was shot with a crossbow bolt through the thigh, just, you know, for her troubles and she had to be dragged away from battle. It was a really bad wound that kept bleeding for five days straight, where they weren't able to just patch it up. The attack as a whole had been as bad as her wound. But in some ways, it was to be expected, you know. She had lost round one of this battle, but everybody understood that you don't just waltz into Paris, you don't just charge and storm the wall and win in one day. So the fact that it was a bad first day was you know, par for the course. So everyone understood that capturing Paris would not be a walk in the park. Of course, it would take plenty of time and energy and casualties if it was going to happen at all. John herself was not thrilled with how things had turned out, but she was ready to try again on the following day. The army was also ready for round two. But here is where things take a weird turn. The king 
inexplicably forced them to give up and order a retreat on September 9th, after only one day of fighting. I mean, what was the king thinking here? Did he really believe that taking Paris would be a one-day job? Why even let the army go ahead if he was going to stop them after only a few hours? In recalling John and the army, the king had said he now realized Paris was too strong. Which makes no sense, because you know that Paris was that strong before you even start. I mean, that's a, such an obvious thing that if you do give the go-ahead, you need to know that... You need to expect that it's going to be a hard thing. You need to expect defeats for a few days. You need That's all in... So I really don't quite get the game that is being played here, of letting them go ahead, letting them get crushed on day one, only to say, oh, turns out it's too hard, change my mind. Doesn't quite... Something seems to be missing in this narrative, you know. Whatever game was being played behind the scene, whether this was a ploy on the part of the diplomats on the king's side to get John to lose a battle and not give her a chance to keep go forward, or I'm not entirely sure what's going on here, but something seems to be off. Now, since she was now forced to turn back without accomplishing her goal, this was John's first loss. She had never lost so far, and this was the first one. So the diplomacy party at the king's court had won, and had taken all the wind from John's sails. Things were not going to get better. Even when she partially redeemed herself with some minor victories in a campaign during October and November. The whole campaign had been conceived by one of the king's advisors who hated John for the purpose of distracting her with a job that was likely to bring limited success and make her lose support with the troops. As part of this campaign, John was stuck fighting against a mercenary captain named Perinet Gressa, who often worked for the English and who had created his own fiefdom in the area. John managed to score a victory and take the town of Saint-Pierre-le-Motier, but was unable to continue the siege of the city where Gressa himself was staying, because the king didn't send enough supplies. So it's pretty clear that John was getting sabotaged by the very people she was supposed to be fighting for. As a consolation prize, and possibly as a subtle hint that it was time for her to retire, the king granted nobility to John's family. The king also ordered that their town of Don Remy be exempt from taxes from that day forward. But it kind of feels like this consolation prize that you're getting, like, okay, good job, pat on the back, now take the hint that you're no longer needed, go home with your prize and just leave us alone. That's at least maybe because of the context of what else the king was doing, but that's kind of what it feels here. Frustrated with how things were going, and with little in which she could channel her energy. In early 1430, John supposedly dictated a letter to the followers of Jan Hus. I, I have no idea if I'm pronouncing right, by the way. I'm taking a complete guess on this guy's name. Jan Hus, maybe, possibly. A priest preaching a vision of Christianity that was at odds with that of the Catholic Church. Now, I'm going to get back in a minute to why I say she supposedly dictated a letter. 
But let me introduce Huss first. He, part of his theology, part of what he believed in, he allowed women to take priestly roles, which is clearly was a big no-no in the Catholic Church. He condemned the corruption of the clergy, something else that the Catholic Church wasn't too happy to have this guy criticizing their priests. He denounced the selling of the indulgences and questioned some of the key central doctrines of the Church. So that's why many historians consider him a sort of a predecessor to Martin Luther, a sort of a grandfather to the Protestant movement. Well, John was a ultra-Catholic, so she was probably not particularly fond of Huss and his followers. In this letter attributed to her by some, it is written, and I'm going to quote extensively from this letter now, she, she said, For some time now, reports and widespread rumors have been reaching me, John the Maid. They have turned from being true Christians to become heretics. Like the Saracens, you have blighted the true religion and worship, embracing a disgraceful and criminal superstition. To tell you frankly, if I was not occupied with these English wars, I would have come to see you a long time ago. And in case the message wasn't clear enough, she added, However, unless I hear that you have mended your ways, I may well abandon the English and march against you, so that by the sword, if I cannot do it in any other way, I may eliminate your mad and obscene superstition and remove either your heresy or your lives. Now, if this letter was indeed something dictated by John, here she comes across as not exactly in line with modern sensibilities. She seems more like a bit of an intolerant religious fanatic, ready to drown different opinions about fate in blood. But there was that supposedly with which I introduced this topic a minute ago. The fact is Quite a few historians question this letter's authenticity. While it is certainly possible that those were actually her words, her style in this letter was very different from most of the other letters she had dictated. On top of it, the letter wasn't signed, unlike what she normally did. So because of this, many people speculate that she wasn't actually the author, and this was actually someone else using her name to push a totalitarian Catholic agenda. The leading candidate as the person suspected of being the author was John's confessor, who used John's name to push his own views. Based on the evidence I've seen, I tend to lean toward this theory, but of course no one can know for sure, and it's plausible, if not likely, it's plausible that she may have been the author. Either way, she would never make the journey to fight Huss followers in Bohemia. Her military career was running on borrowed time. There really wasn't much left of it. Frustrated with inactivity, John and a few hundred men rushed to intercept a force of Anglo-Burgundians of similar size. The very fact that she was now involved in engagements featuring less than 10% of the fighters participating in the battles she had fought just a few months prior, says a lot about how things were changing. In any case, John and their soldiers fought well 
and despite suffering some casualties, they killed or captured almost all the enemies. Among the POWs was a certain Franquet d'Arras. John wanted to trade him for a Frenchman who had been arrested during a failed attempt at liberating Paris. But when she found out that said Frenchman in question was already dead, she handed D'Arras to the citizens of a town who promptly put him on trial for murder, theft and treason. They found him guilty and executed him. Shortly after this event, a much weirder event is said to have taken place. While she was visiting a town, she was approached by a family that had just lost a child at birth. They were distraught over the fact that not only was their kid dead, that's bad enough, but even worse, at least in their eyes, was the fact that the kid had died before he could properly be baptized, and so were despairing over the state of his soul. When at a later date she was asked about what happened, he was three days old, and he was brought before the image of the Blessed Virgin. I was told that the maids of the town were gathered before the image, and I was asked to go and pray to God and the Virgin that life might be restored to the child. I went, with the other maids, and prayed, and at last there seemed to be life in the child, who yawned three times, was baptized, and then instantly died, and was buried in a holy ground. For three days, as people said, he had given no sign of life. He was as black as my coat, but when he yawned, his color began to come back. Now, that's not exactly a full resurrection, but a temporary resurrection to give them time to baptize the baby before he died without further resurrections. In testifying about this, John was very matter-of-fact. She didn't say she caused this to happen. She didn't say, I prayed and I resurrect. She doesn't say any of that. She just said, here is what happened. He was dead. We prayed. He came back to life for a few seconds. He got baptized, died. Make what you will of this. Obviously, what actually happened on that day is something that no person alive today can know for sure. Um, it's an interesting story that kind of tells you a lot about the status that she enjoyed in the minds of lots of people who saw her as this sort of saint. But obviously, who knows what really happened. Now, without a clearly defined mission approved by the king, John was stuck in no man's land, or, I guess more appropriately, no woman's land. She kept having visions and she kept hearing voices, but the messages she was receiving were not encouraging. According to what John will later testify, the voices told her multiple times in unambiguous terms that she was going to be captured. Clearly, that's not what she wanted to hear. The first time they told her this was in April of 1430. As John tells the story, as I was on the ramparts of Milan, St. Catherine and St. Margaret warned me that I should be captured before Midsummer Day. That so it must be, nor must I be afraid and surprised. But I should take all things well, for God would help me. So they spoke, almost every day. 
and I prayed that when I was taken I might die in that hour, without the wretchedness of a long captivity. But the voices said that so it must be. Often I asked the hour, which they didn't tell me. Had I known the hour, I would have not gone into battle. Despite this very human admission that she would have tried to avoid capture at all costs, John didn't think to stay away from all battles so as to avoid capture. She would continue leading men into battle, regardless of the dangers. And if, as the voices said, it was God's will for her to be captured, then so be it. She would try to avoid it if she could help it, but she would not shrink away from the field of battle out of fear. Shortly after receiving this troublesome news from her voices, John received the kind of request that she was physiologically unable to refuse. The call by the citizens of Compiègne was of the kind that pulled heavily at their heartstrings. In one of the most disturbing diplomatic games played by the king, he had agreed to give Compiègne back to the Burgundians. And even now that it had become clear that the Burgundians had been negotiating under false pretenses, and they were not going to give up Paris, the king still decided to stick to his end of the bargain and give them the lands he had promised. This insistence on keeping Swan's word even when others don't may strike some people as noble. It's safe to say that the citizens of Compiègne were not among those people. To them, that was not honorable. It was just stupid. So in defiance of the king's intention, they decided to fight to stay within the domains of the very king who was willing to barter them away. Apparently, they disliked the notion of being under the Burgundian control that much. When John heard that the people in the town were ready to withstand the siege with no help from the French army, well, do I even need to finish that sentence? If you have been picking up on John's attitude, you know exactly what she was about to do. The threat of capture be damned. She wasn't going to let these people get crushed by the Burgundians without anyone coming to their aid. Without bothering to get the king's permission, John got on her horse and headed to Compiègne. With her, she only had about 300 or maybe 400 men. Waiting for for them at Compiègne would be about 6,000 Burgundians besieging the city. Those were definitely not good numbers. It hadn't been much long before when John was riding with possibly up to 10,000 soldiers. But he was useless now to cry over the resources she no longer had. If only 300 or 400 soldiers were willing to ride with her, she would make, she would just make do with them. It was now May 1430. John and their men managed to pass the Burgundian lines and enter the town of Compiègne. There were small fights going on daily as the large Burgundian army kept getting reinforcements and tightening the siege. On May 23, 1430, John emerged from the town and led a sortie with her constantly shrinking following against the Burgundians. 
After a few charges, the Burgundians set up an ambush for her, by retreating and hiding some men between her and the town. In the fighting that followed, as her men were retreating, John took major chances staying with the rear guard to protect her men's retreat. Something brave, but also something that most leaders won't do because it's far too dangerous. The fact that she chose to do this despite this premonition that she may soon be captured speaks volumes about the woman's fearlessness. But it's at this point that John's path, the path that she had invented for herself since leaving Domremy, ran into a door firmly shut in her face. This was no metaphorical door, mind you. What happened was that the town John was fighting for closed the gates before she and the French rearguard could make it back to the safety of the walls. This act, the closing of the gates at Compiègne, has been analyzed by historians ever since. Why did they do it? Some people suggest the order was given out of fear that the Burgundians on the heels of John's army could enter the town and storm it. Others suggest something more nefarious. What they argue is that she was intentionally betrayed and the gates were closed on purpose. The evidence they point to is the fact that the gate that was closed was a smaller side gate that would have not allowed for the entrance of many enemies, even had it stayed open until the last possible moment. The historians who dismiss this conspiratorial interpretation ask why would Guillaume de Flavie, the town's captain, take a bribe to set up John but not later betray the town in Burgundian hands. Down the road, in fact, the Burgundians would fail the siege and will have to give up. Either way, John and a few followers were locked outside the town, surrounded by an ocean of enemies. The next chaotic, highly stressful moment would be the last experience of freedom John would ever have. Before long, in the ensuing fight, one of the Burgundians would manage to pull her down from the horse. She was soon surrounded by enemies and captured. A prize for the Burgundians, possibly greater than the town itself. Upon hearing the news, Philip the Good, Duke of Burgundy, would later write, By the pleasure of our blessed creator, the woman called the maid has been taken, and from her capture will be recognized the error and mad belief of all those who became sympathetic and favorable to the deeds of this woman. John's luck had reached the end of the road, but the end would not come quickly. The last act of John's life was yet to come. And it's precisely this last act that will be the subject of the final chapter in this series on the next episode of History on Fire.
Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Big thank you to all the sweet folks who have been using the History on Fire Amazon link. If you are planning on doing Christmas shopping, it would be great if you do it using the History on Fire Amazon link that's found in the episode notes at historyonfirepodcast.com. Big thank you to the sweet folks who have been donating on Patreon. Particularly a shout out to Justin Maples and Josh Riddle for sponsoring History on Fire at the $50 level and Susan Moss O'Donnell and Mauro Gatti for sponsoring at the $100 level. This episode of History on Fire is also brought to you by 4 a one-stop shop for hair loss, skin care, sexual wellness for men. Some crazy statistics I was reading, some... 66% of guys experience hair loss by the age of 35. 40% of men by age 40 struggle with ED. These guys at 4hims.com try to solve those problems in the easiest possible way. You don't need an in-person doctor visit for a prescription. Everything can be done online. They basically sell you the generic version, which is considerably cheaper but works the same than some of the name brand for the top hair loss and ED products. You can try their products for a month, starting today for just $5. So, while supplies last, only $5 for History on Fire listeners. This would cost, needless to say, would cost a whole lot more if you were to go any other route. So go to 4 forward slash history and the number 5. Again, that's F-O-R-H-I-M-S dot com forward slash history and the number 5. Can't beat this deal, so check them out. This episode is sponsored by Action Heat. Action Heat makes the world's best heated clothing. In case you are wondering what exactly are heated clothes, That would be clothes powered by rechargeable batteries to keep you warm even in the most brutally cold winter. Think of a heated car seat and imagine applying the same technology to clothes. They have heated jackets, socks, gloves, hats, even long johns. Now, I live in sunny California, so what do I know about having to deal with sub-zero winter temperatures? Well, one of my favorite places is Big Bears, which is only two hours from my house, but it's 7,000 feet up a mountain and it gets plenty cold out there. So I'm heading out over Christmas to spend a few weeks there and I look forward to trying Action Heat and test it under duress. Well, this is speaking of Christmas, Action Heat will make great Christmas gifts, so we got a special deal for our listeners to save 15% off your entire order. Just go to actionheat.com forward slash history to check out everything they have to offer. Again, that's actionheat.com forward slash history or use the coupon code history at checkout to save 15%. You guys by now know who else we are sponsored by since they have been sponsoring us all year long. You have heard it before, History on Fire is sponsored by blueapron.com. And you've heard it before, not just because of repetition, but because of the insane level level of enthusiasm that I've been displaying when I talk about them. Because we eat that three times a week, three days a week. We got our, you know, we got the delivery once a week, and then we have food lasting for three awesome meals of the week. 
my only regret is that I don't have more. Maybe I should up my plan and start getting more stuff. In any case, they offer amazing recipes. You can pick how many you want each week, whether two, three or four. High quality ingredients, fairly easy to follow um, directions. Usually you can get an amazing meal prepared for really fast. So, what I suggest you do is check out this week's menu and get your first three meals for free at blueapron.com forward slash on fire. Again, that's blueapron.com forward slash on fire to get your first three meals free. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. We're also brought to you by letterjoy.co. So that's not .com, it's .co. Letterjoy mails you or someone you love one curated historic letter every week. Uh, They are mailed on either fine cotton or parchment paper using a real stamp. So that's an interesting way to make sure that some of history's most fascinating figures now become your pen pals. You give or receive weekly historic letters from figures like Thomas Jefferson, Florence Nightingale, George Patton, you name it. These guys pick from the world's best libraries and archives to find great letters to tell every story. Each letter comes with background information to help you contextualize it, and it's a great way to experience history through the words of those who wrote it. Among some of the recent letters, there are some by Sam Houston and Stephen Austin strategizing on how to beat General Santana of Mexico, one by Justice Samuel Chase trying to plead his innocence during an impeachment trial of a Supreme Court justice, which is a big first in history. Here is a listener exclusive for our guys. If you use the code ONFIRE to get a $5 credit toward your first gift or membership. So again, that's the code ONFIRE to get a $5 credit when you visit letterjoy.co. Again, that's letterjoy.co to get started. Big shout out to the nice people at www.travelisbeautiful.com. Uh, as the name implies, this is a travel blog uh, website. They have a section with the travel blog itself, they, which has the most content on the website. There are articles with usually historical background relevant to the locations they discuss, places that the authors have visited in their journeys, Anything from uh, hiking to the bottom of the Grand Canyon, climbing to the top of Angel's Landing, floating some 200 miles of the Colorado River, and many other international destinations. There's also a photo gallery section to the website containing high-quality images of the places they have visited. So if you dig travel and you dig high-quality photography, check out this cool website. And if you do find it interesting, just subscribe to get updates for when they publish new content. Again, that's www.travelisbeautiful.com Please also show some love to our regular sponsors, Datsusara with the greatest hemp gear on the planet. I'm roll when I train in jiu-jitsu in a Datsusara gi, I go to work carrying Datsusara bags, I wear Datsusara clothing, Finest temp gear you're going to find in beautiful design. Check them out at dsgear.com. 
and also a huge thank you to Onnit. Now, Onnit in November it's a special month because they have their Black Friday sale, which is the stuff of legend, because their products get slashed during this period of time. Starting on Thanksgiving, November 22nd, Onnit's biggest sale of the year will deliver the deepest discounts on all their favorite products. Nothing is off limits, every single one of them you can get discounts from the nootropic like alpha brains to some of the fitness equipment and just about everything else. There is also going to be free shipping this time around with minor exclusions. So check them out, huge discounts on pretty much everything. Uh, the way to go is you can go at onnit.com forward slash black dash friday. Okay, onnit.com forward slash black dash friday. Big shout out to Snow Roast Coffee Roasters out of Colorado. These guys roast exotic single origin coffee and creative blends from around the world. They do it one small batch at a time over a mile high. Their beans do not sit on the shelf very long. They do not oxidize in a coffee shop plastic storage bin. Their coffee is roasted, cooled, bagged, sealed and sent directly to your door just for you to enjoy. Because they are a small scale operation, it's very much first come first serve. So you can go to snowroast.com to check out what they have in stock and get it. Buy if they, you know, they let you know immediately. They update the websites constantly to let you know what's in stock, what's available and what's not. At checkout, you can use the code HOF and the number 18 to get a big discount. Again, that's HOF18. For a discount. Also thank you to NeverTapGear.com with the most awesome rush guard ever designed by our Savannah M, giving a homage to the historical figure of the great female samurai Tomoe Godzen. NeverTapGear.com and also thank you to DynastyForge.com for the amazing swords that they have shared with me over time. If you didn't catch any of the above websites, the links are in the episode notes at historyonfirepodcast.com. And with that, we are officially done. Thank you so much for listening. Next month, we are going to wrap up the Joan of Arc story. So I hope you stick around for it. In the meantime, have a wonderful day. Mm-hmm.